0: I went from having this glamorous record deal with Epic Records flying me to New York and flying me to Nashville and having stylists to literally working in a restaurant where I had to be there at like five in the morning to chop up like 400 cantaloupes.
1: Hello, and welcome to How to Fail Successfully, the podcast that teaches the steps to success through the stories of failures. I'm so happy that you can join me as I interview some of my favorite people and encourage them to share their story with you. I'm Matthew Carrier, and this is How to Fail Successfully. Welcome back. This is episode number 16 with today's guest, Jamie Floyd. Now, before we get started with Jamie, did everybody watch the Super Bowl halftime show with Justin Timberlake? Hopefully you did. If you remember in last week's episode, we sat down with Divine Evans. He's the man behind the music. He helped create all the musical transitions and dance breakdowns for that show. I loved it. I thought it was amazing. I thought he did a phenomenal job. If you haven't listened to that, that's last week's episode. In this week's episode, I sit down with the Grammy-nominated and possibly soon-to-be, hopefully Academy Award-nominated, Waitress. Now, I'm going to let her explain to you why that is, but we start off by talking about how Jamie got started. She found success at an early age, but then also, very young, found out what failure feels like, and she was able to learn how to use failure to help drive her. Here's my sit down with Jamie. Enjoy. All right, Jamie. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Before we get going, kind of fill us in with what you're working on these
0: days. Well, I um, had the incredible opportunity to write a song for a movie. Um, It's called The Last Movie Star, and it's Burt Reynolds' final feature film of his career. It's starring him and Chevy Chase and Ariel Winter from Modern Family and um a co-writer friend of mine named John Martin and I were asked to write a song for the movie and we ended up writing 18 oh my and they put 12 <laughs> yeah we wrote 18 songs for them and they ended up uh using 12 of those songs in the actual film so my partner John and I my writing partner um and I ended up writing the entire soundtrack for this movie and it's going to be uh coming to theater soon in 2018 and we're just super excited about that we're we became a duo as a result of this movie, and our duo is called Stranger Friends. And our basically our album and/or the soundtrack, which are one and the same, <laughs> are going to come out um, when the movie does. And we're very excited about the last movie star and about having written the entire soundtrack. I guess that's only happened a few times in history. One of them being uh, Simon and Garfunkel having done the entire soundtrack for *The Graduate*. So. We're just—we uh, have some big shoes to fill, Absolutely. but um, we're very excited. Yeah, we're excited to have to have uh, our music reach people kind of through a different um, medium, as opposed to how you normally would break a, a band. You know, would be through the radio and everything. So we're hoping to kind of get on everybody's radar through the <laughs> movie theaters.
1: <laughs> that's kind of a big deal.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's awesome.
1: Um, okay, well, I—I've known you for quite a while. Uh, I've been a fan of yours for. Maybe 12 years that we've known each other. Um, but before we met, you obviously already had a music career. Kind of take us back to the beginning. Inform us on what little Jamie Floyd was doing and why she got into the music industry.
0: Well, I grew up as the child of two professional working musicians. So I started getting on stage with my parents when they played club date gigs in Palm Beach um, as early as two years old. So I kind of learned how to be on stage and I I, uh, got real comfortable (laughs) with the life of a musician from a very early age. And at the age of 11, I signed my first record deal with Epic Records out of New York City and I signed my first publishing deal then as well. So I got got a pretty early start and um, I had this record deal from when I was 11 to 17 and they uh, had wanted me to kind of switch over to do pop music instead of country music. And country music is always where my heart had been, and I wanted to be a part of the evolution of country music, and it was really important to me to stay true to who I was. So long story short, was my first record deal is they, they had me flying to Nashville to perform um, Epic Records in New York, had me flying to Nashville to perform for Epic Records here in Nashville and the other record companies here to kind of transition me from the pop side of their label to the countryside and to see who would like to take me on here in Nashville. And that week that we were going to do my showcase for the labels in Nashville was the week of the September 11th tragedy in New York. And we were supposed to fly on September 11th. And um, as you know, the whole world kind of stopped turning that day. and as a result of that, I my record deal kind of fell apart with them. They wanted me to stay and and be a pop uh recording artist and I told them I was around 15 or 16 at that point and I told them I just couldn't be something I wasn't. And my whole family thought I was crazy to turn down a pop record deal with Sony, but I did. <laughs> I I turned that down. And actually, the president of of the vice president of Sony had so much respect for me in that decision. He offered to extend my contract for six months and tried to pass me off to one of the labels in Nashville um, because my convictions were so strong. And um, if I believed that much, then so did he. But because of September 11th and how businesses obviously around the world and nobody kind of knew what was going to happen, it all just kind of dissolved. So I lost my record deal with Sony. And I took what would have been my senior year of high school, and I got a full-time job working around the corner from my brother and sister's school at a health food cafe. When I was 16, um, I graduated from high school a year early. I had been homeschooling myself through the record deal. And I worked what would have been my senior year full-time, got dropped off in the morning with my brother and sister and got picked up with them uh, when they got done with school. And I saved all, all the money I could to move myself to Nashville, and I somehow convinced Belmont University to give me some scholarships to help with moving here. And my parents dropped me off with the money I had raised working, the, working prep at that little restaurant. Uh, they dropped me off in 2003 here in Nashville, and I didn't get to see them for a few years because they were musicians and couldn't afford to come here, and I certainly couldn't have afforded to go back to Florida. And uh, I started all over. I'd had that record deal as a kid, and I started all over in Nashville a few years later.
1: Let me ask you a question. Yeah, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You were, what, you said 15, 16 years old when you lost that deal?
0: Yes. I mm-hmm. mean,
1: is that not like the world comes crashing down? I mean, how do you deal with that as oh, a 15-year-old? Yeah.
0: Well, I thought that was my chance. I, I thought that my career, there was a time, I will say, that I thought my career was over, like I had had my chance. Because let's let's kind of be realistic. I mean, who, first of all, gets a record deal? a record deal at all, you know, with a major label is, is one in a million kind of uh, situation. And then to lose that and to be a a kid, you know, it just felt like, well, that was my chance. And, and that's it. Because when does that, when does that kind of lightning strike twice? Um, But I remember the day I lost, the day that it was official that my deal was over, that night I was opening for Mark Wills. Down in Florida, and he had the number one song in the country at the time. And I was opening his show that night. And I remember being outside that day with my mom. We were taking a walk, and I looked at her and I said, "I'm going to move to Nashville." And she said, "We don't have any money." You know, I that was my plan. Like my record deal was ending that day, and I was 16, and I had just graduated from high school a year early. And I had this year, you know, that would have been my senior year. And I told my mom, I'm, I'm going to get a job tomorrow. And she was like, what, what are you going to do? You know, we don't have any money to move you. And I said, well, I'm going to go get a job and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move myself. And she was like, okay. And so the very next day, true story, I went downtown because I knew I needed to get a job close to where my brother and sister worked so that I could be dropped or close to where my brother and sister went to school so that I could be dropped off with them because I didn't have a car and I couldn't drive. And I went, I actually got a job at the public defender's office as a uh, data entry person at 16. And then I just walked around the corner and there was a little restaurant that said that they needed employees and they were willing to pay like, you know, 25 cents more an hour. So instead of making, you know, $5 and 59 cents an hour, I was going to make $6 an hour. And I got a job the very next day and I started working immediately and it was one of the hardest things ever because I went from honest to God having this glamorous uh, record deal with Epic Records flying me to New York and flying me to Nashville and having stylists and people doing my hair and buying clothes for me and doing these big shows to literally working in a restaurant where I had to be there at like five in the morning to chop up like 400 cantaloupes for the day. (laughs) And, um, it was a really, I mean, I would be on my hands and knees scrubbing the floors and, and just doing anything that needed to be done. And it was a real, a real scene change. And it felt like, it felt like I was starting at the bottom, um, after having everything I'd ever wanted and it was really difficult, but, um, but I just had decided then I had it in me and I didn't even realize it, but I, I just had this instinct to keep going and to figure it out no matter what. So I went from the highest you could possibly be. And I had, you know, they had given me an advance to a signing bonus. This is back in the day when the labels, you know, had more money. And, (laughs) and it was a little bit, the music business had a different climate. And so they had given me a signing bonus. So I took, what was left of that and I got my you know I had homeschooled myself but then I saved like a thousand dollars or two and that's what helped me move to Nashville all the money I had made working at the restaurant which was like probably less than two thousand dollars for that whole year you know and a little bit of my advance that I had left and I, I actually paid for my mom and dad to have child care for my brother and sister and I paid to fit, get our car fixed and everything so that they could actually drop me off like the other kids at Belmont. Wow. And uh, I paid to get them a hotel to stay in when they came to take me here. And, and I didn't see them again for a couple of years after they dropped me off. But I basically orchestrated the whole thing to where I could get myself here and at least be here because I knew I needed to be here. I didn't know what I was going to do when I got here. I, I knew I would have to start over. But it was a really – it was my first introduction to to what would a lot of people would see as failure, you know, not being able to make your first record deal work or, you know, just all kinds of circumstances made it so that it it fell through, but I fought through it and I was able to get myself here, even though I think a lot of people, including my family, you know, just thought that I was, you know, that that was it, but that, that was my chance and not in a discouraging way, but, you know, they, they just thought, well, that there was that, you know, and I, I wouldn't take no for an answer and I wouldn't, that I just couldn't stop there. Even though the circumstances, the money wasn't there, nothing was easy, but I figured it out and I got myself to Nashville after all that. So I had this whole giant story before I even came to Nashville. Like when I got here, I I got into my first music business class at Belmont and everybody wanted a record deal and I had just left one, you know? (laughs) And I felt like it was this alternate universe because everybody wanted what, what I had just gotten out of. And it was just a really weird place to be in. I felt very out of place. I felt like it's a twilight zone a little bit, Mm -hmm. but I, I just, you know, I felt like I was starting at zero again and it was pretty scary, but for something inside of me told me that, that this is what I needed to do. So I did. Hmm. Well, Belmont's
1: full of very talented people. Uh, So when you show Mm -hmm. up in Belmont, What did you do to separate yourself from everybody else? Like, how did you rise above?
0: Yeah, I got to Belmont, and and I, um, I immediately asked around, because I knew you could use the studio for free. That was part of the, you could use the recording studios at Belmont if you were able to find an engineering major who would engineer your sessions for you, so... Within the first couple months I, that I got to Belmont, I, I figured out how the studio worked and how to get in there, and I knew that was the most valuable thing that I could do there. I also kind of, I kind of played the system at Belmont where um, you're not allowed to take the upper level classes without kind of taking the lower level classes first, you know in the music business program. but I convinced my guidance counselor and everybody to let me take the 300 level classes in the music business first. So I got to take, like, the advanced copyright classes and all these things that I thought I would need, I got to take those um, immediately. So I just filled my That's whole schedule great. with, <laughs> I, you know, with everything I thought that I would need because I didn't know how long I could afford school for. So I was trying to get everything I possibly could. So I got myself into the classes I thought were most practical. And I put myself a lot of, they had a lot of adjunct professors people who are in the music business, like big journalists or big songwriters. And I put myself in every one of their classes. And to this day, some of those people are my dear friends, like in the music business, you know, publicists and people that I just weaseled my way as a freshman into their classes. And they all looked at me like, you're not supposed to be here. And I was like, well, <laughs> too <I'm here>. bad. <laughs> so that's what I did, I just got myself into, into the classes. And then I also got into the studio. And that was one of the the smartest things I could have done because the quote unquote session musicians at Belmont who were students of course, but the people known to be the best session musicians ended up being also again, some of my closest friends to this day. And the first person I hired to be in my band and to be in my session band was John Osborne, who is now a mm-hmm. brother's Osborne and they are the top duo in country music right now. And uh, so John Osborne was my lead guitar player. I met him within two months of getting to Belmont. I hired, um, a drummer named Bryce Williams, who to this day is still on the road with everybody and is a big drummer here, and um, Josh Matheny, who's like the dobro player in, mm-hmm. in music here in Nashville, and those are the people I met immediately, and they became like my brothers, and I learned very in the very beginning how to, to be such a better songwriter and guitar player from them, and I just surrounded myself with people who were way better than I was, and um, Chris Young and I would write in the practice rooms all the time. I got to sing a lot with Chris Young, and so I just kind of found people who were like-minded and just started making music. And I would stay in those studios all night long, by the way. I found one of my, my engineering major who got me into the studio. She would like let us in there after hours. So I'd record all night in those studios. And um, I just kind of did whatever I needed to do and, and, uh, I broke a few rules along the way, but it really, it really worked out. I felt like I got as much as I possibly could out of that experience before I had to drop out. So I just, I did whatever I had to do as soon as I got there. I started working immediately. So So
1: what was that turning point in your career? Was there a moment that just changed your whole course? Uh, what was that big break that you, you got?
0: Yeah. So while I was at Belmont, my parents, uh, So I didn't get to see them um, after I moved to Belmont, and they were so sad that we were going to be separated for God knows how long. That they actually sold the house I grew up in, and they moved to Nashville with that money, and they brought my brother and sister with the last money that they had, and they opened up a piano teaching studio here, which they couldn't keep afloat in, in order to make money to stay. So long story short, they basically moved here, lost everything, and had to move back to Florida within a few months' time, and. They took the last couple thousand dollars they had to their name and bought me a car so that I could, because I had nothing here, and they bought me this car so that I could get a job. Well, like a job that would pay more than just, you know, the little jobs at Belmont would pay. And so I got a job working at a Panera Bread where I would open the bakery at like four in the morning here. So I would. This was my turning point. I got this job at Panera. I would open the bakery from 4 in the morning, and I would work till 2 in the afternoon. I would take my classes from 3 to 9, and then I would try to study and go to bed and have to open the bakery again the next morning, and I felt like I was working so hard to pay for this, to pay for college, you know, what, what the scholarships wouldn't cover, that I was kind of missing what I should have been doing. And at the time, I had also gotten into all, I had won the showcases at Belmont, I had won country showcase, and I felt like I had done everything that I came there to do, made all these friends, I had kind of, you know, gotten gotten to be so visible in the country music scene at Belmont, and I felt like I needed to go do it in Nashville, you know, and kind of I was, I had to make a choice, you know, I was either going to work like a maniac to take classes I couldn't study for and and all of that, or I was going to get out there and do it. So right after I was in best of the best showcase at Belmont, I dropped out because I couldn't afford it anymore. I got a job in a restaurant and I decided, okay, I'm going to write full time and I'm going to work full time and I'm going to see what happens if I just give it everything I've got. And that was a decision I had to make, but that was the turning point for me. I just had so many hardships happen and my parents losing our house and all those things. I just had to do, I had to give it everything I had. And for, for my specific situation, that called for me to drop out of school and to, instead of study about it, I needed to go do it. And that is what I did. And I, that's when I started writing full time. That was in 2005. And, uh, I worked, at a restaurant here and I wrote full time during the day. And that's what started to change my life. And in 2000, the end of 2007, I got my next publishing deal as a result of that.
1: So in 2007, you have a Mm -hmm. a publishing deal. So did you, did you ever feel like added pressure from the situation with your parents for selling everything and moving? Mm -hmm. Was there like extra pressure put on you? Do you think
0: it, it was, um, it, it was, it was motivation. It wasn't so much pressure. It was motivation to, to try to help make everybody's circumstances better. You know, my parents have been musicians for their whole lives and they ended up having to move back to Florida because obviously there are no gigs in Nashville to pay, you know, like other places. And, um, Nashville's just inundated and, and they had great following in Florida and, and were able to, they're just kind of the top band down there. So they could go back and work, which was good. But they just wanted to keep our family together. And so the way for me to contribute to make that happen was to try and, you know, quote unquote, make it and make it so that our situation as a family maybe could be a little less volatile. You know, as as the child of musicians, it was very hand-to-mouth, which was great. My parents always found a way to make it work, but I was very used to, you know, not, not being able to do things until you play the gig, you know, <laughs> and, um, you know, you, you get to, you, are basically, your life is dependent upon your gig. So I was just trying to, uh, it, it motivated me to try and, um, make it happen, you know, to make all their sacrifices that they had made from my childhood and, and that they had even made, recently, you know, with being in college, uh, worth it, you know, I wanted to not make those sacrifices in vain. So I, it was just motivated me to, to make things happen, I guess. Is there, um,
1: is there a reason yeah. why you say quote unquote made it?
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, uh, because making it is not, it's kind of just never true. I don't know if you ever do make it because it, it's funny in the last few months, Um, I've had a lot of people say that to me, whether it be in interviews or people after the shows or just people who've known me for a long time that I haven't seen or even people that I do know who believe that I have uh, made it. And they'll ask me, you know, what's it like you finally made it? (laughs) And it's such a a hard question. It's such a weird answer to give because um, although I'm grateful for everything that has happened, I there is never I I personally have never um come to a point where I have felt that that is true. Um and it's just interesting what people's perception is compared to what your reality is, you know. And I just think in the entertainment business, you can keep working, you know, if you're working, then then you're you're probably doing better than than most if you're able to to really make your living at making music, but I don't think anybody no matter how successful can, can truly tell you that they think they've made, or at least I haven't been able to. It, it's just a, it's a really, the entertainment business is a really difficult place to be. And, and I know that even up till last week, I have had like a roller coaster of a, of a time, even, you know, me telling you I have this soundtrack coming out and the perception is that everything is, is amazing. And a lot of that is amazing, but um, it's, I mean, I just, just, yeah, tell us um, what the
1: reality of the situation
0: is. the reality is i lost um my record deal last week i i have a major motion picture going to be in theaters in a you know coming out and i lost my management and my record deal last week by the week before christmas so it just goes to show that uh you know it you're first of all you're never nothing is ever a guarantee in the music business but it just goes to show no matter how many amazing things that you can drum up. Unfortunately, there are always circumstances that can that can derail you. Fortunately for me, I have been in enough circumstances and I've had enough difficult circumstances and I've had the rug pulled out from under me a number of times to where it doesn't scare me anymore. This particular time is just terrible timing, but ultimately I think in the long run, I think it'll be amazing for, for John and I as Stranger Friends to have what might be an Oscar-nominated movie, you know, next year in the theaters. That's kind of the rumor because Burt Reynolds, by the way, has never won an Oscar. And we were really lucky to have A24, which is like the top independent movie distributor in the nation, by, you know, by, by the last movie star, and they're going to be behind the promotion. They have the, the movie out right now called Lady Bird. And they're yeah. doing an incredible job with that um, as far as the Oscar buzz. And and last year, if, if you all are familiar with the movie Moonlight, which won the Best Picture at the Oscars, A24 was responsible for that movie as well. Wow. So okay. they're, they're basically trying to do what they do best with our movie. And so we have every hope that they're going to, we're all rallying around Bert and hoping to get him an Oscar nomination. But it just goes to show, you know, you can have what, what might be an Oscar nominated movie, you know, coming to theaters. And you can have the rug pulled out from under you, but I think ultimately it'll be a great thing for John and I down the road to uh, to kind of see what our options are. But in the meantime, we're going to have to fight for this ourselves. We're going to be putting out a major motion picture soundtrack ourselves, and we're really proud of that. And we made it happen ourselves, and we're going to put it out ourselves. And we have some great people around us with the film, and we have some, some incredible support from... From our friends and family and and uh the people that we made this movie with but but ultimately it's up to John and i to to make this happen and uh i mean we got we've made a we somehow got you know to make an entire soundtrack ourselves, and I have a lot of faith in us, but it just goes to show that you you just kind of can't count on anything in the music business and uh, I only got to quit my waiting tables' job I only got to quit the restaurant back in April of this year, so I feel like. I felt like, okay, I finally have created enough success for myself to where I don't have to work another job. And now, you know, this happens. And, I mean, it's possible that I could be working back in a restaurant the day that my movie goes to theaters nationwide. That is my reality right now. And you know what? I'm just not scared of it because last year I had a documentary I was a part of that I – they used my story as – as kind of what would weave the whole film together because just about a year and a half ago I had my first Grammy nomination and I was working as a waitress. So I, you know what, I'm like, okay, let's go for the Oscar nominated waitress. Now yes. let's do that. <laughs> yes. um, so let's, okay, we'll start with the Grammy and we'll try for an Oscar next time because I just, at this point, I just, I will, I won't let anything stop me. And if, if, I don't know if there's one thing that my past has proven to me, It is that I am a fighter and when things seem the lowest that they can go, I am able to turn that into something even greater because I've learned that I have come back more successful than I ever would have been under the previous circumstances, Mm -hmm. you know, that I would have had, you know, had I not been dropped or had this publisher not dropped me or, or whatever it has, all the deals that I've lost over the years, I've always been very upset at first, but then my circumstances have been so much better than they ever would have been had i stayed in the previous circumstance so i just i feel like this is a blessing in disguise and it was just very appropriate that that you had asked me to um to be a part of this podcast right on the on the heels of of losing my my latest deal (laughs) so it's uh I, i feel like i i can definitely speak to to what it's like to fail and what it's like to come back from it even stronger
1: don't you just love her positive attitude? I absolutely love it. And when I first asked her and she told me that she had just lost her record deal and her management deal, I, I almost shied away and said, you know, you don't have to do this, but she wanted to. And that's what I admire about Jamie is that her, just, her drive to keep going is just absolutely amazing. And in the second half of this conversation, we'll hear more stories, including the story behind how she got Brian McNack and Dolly Part to sing her songs. She'll also share the story about how she got her first number one song in fake Nashville. That is Nashville, the TV show. Here's the second half of my conversation with Jamie. Enjoy. When you left Belmont to become a songwriter full time, was this to become a songwriter for other people or for you as an artist? How do you determine where to focus your songwriting um, time on yourself or other people?
0: Well, I moved to Nashville wanting to be the next Trisha Yearwood. I wanted to be um, a singer. I always saw myself as an interpreter, a a storyteller, and um, I always thought my, my strongest, my just strongest ability was my, my, the, the use of my voice. And when I first got my very first publishing deal when I was 11, I remember getting that publishing deal and, and I hadn't really written any songs yet, but as, but as they do, when, when you sign a record deal, a lot of times they'll kind of, you know, sign you to a publishing deal and, and just kind of all around have you covered, you know, to where they're able to oh, business-wise yeah. <laughs> kind of have you, yeah, kind of, well, yeah, kind of have you locked up on all sides, right? So they assigned me to a publishing deal. And when I, I remember being in my very first co-write in Nashville, which I was very spoiled, they put me in the room with Greg Barnhill, who wrote Walk Away Joe for Trisha Yearwood and, and just had all these huge, you know, Grammy-nominated songwriters. It was Greg and Jim Daddario, and that was my very first co-write ever as a child. And I remember coming out of the room, and we had written like five songs in a day, me and these, and, and these two songwriters. And my mom, I remember Greg, Saying to my mom, she can do this. She she's a songwriter, and it surprised both my mom and me. <laughs> and my mom was like, "Really?" And he said, "Yeah, she's she has something." And I didn't even know it then. I didn't see myself as a songwriter, but apparently, just kind of my instinct as a writer was there even as a child. And and Greg and Jim kind of um, recognized that before I did myself. And then when I got to Belmont and was around budding songwriters like John Osborne, like Josh Matheny, like Chris Young, all of a sudden I just had I had the instinct and I had something to say also. And I'm a very sensitive, some would say overly sensitive person, <laughs> but that is what makes me good at my job. And I started to realize that I had something to say and I was able to say it in in a way that only I could. And as I started to realize that, I I started to develop it. And I started to co-write with all of those guys, and I started to really become the songwriter that I had always been. I just didn't know it, and I started to discover that and I discovered myself as a songwriter at belmont and then um as i when I dropped out of school and I started to write full time, those were really the years where I honed my craft and where I became I don't know. I just kind of became the songwriter that I never knew that I could be. And I had so much encouragement and I had so many incredible teachers, you know, and those teachers were my co-writers and people that I had no business being in the room with who took a chance on me and just allowed me to watch their process and allowed me to kind of absorb some of their genius as much as I could. And and I still do that to this day. Um, But I just I was a songwriter and I didn't know it until later later in life. <laughs> and then I as I started to get outside cuts, because all of my cuts have been outside cuts. I don't have you know, these days they will say that the only way you can get on someone's record is to write with the artist. And all of my cuts are kind of like the wild cards where I have never written with the artist. All the cuts I've gotten are co writes that I have not written with the artist. And they're usually um, everybody says that nobody wants to cut sad songs, you know, nobody wants to you know nobody wants to do that, and so all my songs that I'm the proudest of have been outside cuts, and they're and sad, ballads. sad songs. Yes. <laughs> so that's my that's my goal. I want to be the songwriter that gets all the outside cuts that that I can. You know that my songs can stand on their own to where it would motivate someone who is a songwriter to cut those. You know without having written them, and uh, to just write lyrics and to to kind of put forth messages that are hopefully undeniable and that to kind of motivate artists to to cut these songs. And and I've tried to do that so far and it's it's worked some. (laughs) One of those songs is what got me my my Grammy nomination. So I just didn't listen to the rules. I didn't listen to how it's supposed to go and I never have. And that is what has kind of garnered me my greatest successes thus far. Just not listening to what anybody has to say that I can't do this or you'll never, that'll never happen. You'll never be able to pull that off. and, And I just, I kind of sit back and go, okay, well, I'm gonna try anyway, and let's see what I can make happen. <laughs> so that's that's kind of always been my mo.
1: <laughs> Your Grammy nomination was for the song "The Blade," right? Is that yeah. the Okay. Mm-hmm. There's two other credits that you, songwriting credits that you have. You may not have a story mm-hmm. for both of these, but I'm sure you have it for mm-hmm. one of them. Uh, mm-hmm. Brian McKnight, one of my heroes. Mm-hmm. How did you get a cut on Brian McKnight's record?
0: Well, it's actually, um, it's not in his record. I got a cut with Brian McKnight for a song he sang in a movie. Oh, um, okay. so it's, so it's within the movie soundtrack. I, this is a, a, a really interesting story, I think. So I was, I had just lost my, whatever it was like number five publishing deal. I think my fifth publishing deal, I had just gotten out of that and I had gone back to work in a restaurant I was starting over again and, uh, I was bartending and the producer that I had worked with in LA sends me a text message while I'm bartending and says, Hey, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I'm working. What's up? And she said, and I, by the way, I had never done a movie before. I'd never written for a movie before. She said, "Um, well, I'm working on Dolly Parton's Christmas movie. And she wrote all the songs, Dolly wrote all the songs. uh, But Dolly, for whatever reason, didn't write the finale and we need it and we can't find it. And I told the movie producers that you are going to write it. <laughs> I was like, cause I had had, I had gotten this reputation for being able to turn things around very quickly and for being just a hard worker and being kind of always being available. Like if you call me, I'm going to call you right back. Kind of kind of person. So she said, I told them you're going to do it. And if anybody can do it, you're going to be it. You're going to save us. And I was just like, Okay. And I'd never written for a movie before. And she said, I'm going to send you the script. And I just want you to write the finale, record it, and, and send it back. And I was like, okay, when, when do you need it? And all the while, I'm working at this point, I'm still bartending and texting her. And she wrote back and she said, We need it tomorrow morning. Oh, my goodness. So at this point, I wasn't getting out of work until probably one in the morning. And I still had the script to read. I needed to write the song and I somehow needed to record it and turn it in. Uh, <laughs> To the movie producers the next morning, and so thank God LA is a few hours behind us. So I get home, I read the script and I write the song. I kind of don't remember writing it, but but I did. And I called a friend of mine who has a host uh, a home studio here, and I called him and I said, Grant, I need to um, I need you to do me a favor. And he was like, What? I was like, I need to I need to come over and record, and I need to do it at like five in the morning. Can you can you let me do this? he was like, okay, sure, we'll send me the song. And I was like, well, it's not written yet. <laughs> and because uh, he wanted to get, start to help me get the track started. Uh-huh, and I was yeah. like, no, it's not even written. I, I don't have it yet. But I will have it at five in the morning and I will be there. And so I, I write the song. I go in the next morning. I had my friend Grant, it needed to be a male vocal. So I had Grant cut it. We do it. I send it in to the producers. I, at this point, haven't slept at all. I've been up all night and I have to go back to work. So I have to go back to work. I'm back at work on zero sleep. I'm bartending again. And the movie producers say, we love this. This is it. You did it. You saved us. This is amazing. Now we want you to write another one. We want you to kind of edit another one that's in the movie. We we need help with it. Can you do it? And I'm like, yes. (laughs) and And they needed it the next morning. So I had to do, so at this point, I have been up for 48 hours. The second song I write, I get it. You know, they, they kind of have the bones of it, but it needed to be complete, completely overworked and they just are over, uh, overhauled. And since I kind of grasped how the finale needed to be right on the nose, they thought I could do the same thing with this other song and kind of save the other scene. So I reworked this whole song and it ends up, uh, I I changed, I do everything to it. And I come up with this hook called Trouble, Get Me Off Your Mind." And I write it and I turn it in again, I am like a zombie, and I record it, I turn it in the whole thing, and they take it as well. Oh my goodness. At this point, I am a zombie, and so this is for Dolly Parton's Christmas movie called "The Country Christmas Story" that was going to air on Annie and Lifetime and all the Annie Network's Discovery Hallmark. So I write the songs, and the money that I was paid to do that I kind of kick-started my own publishing company with. So I went in and I gave myself. With the money that they paid me to do the Dolly movie, I went in and I demoed the Blade. And I demoed my very first demo session as a songwriter. And little did I know, the very first demo session I would do as my own publisher would have a Grammy nomination as a result. But one thing kind of led to another. Which was amazing. But the crazy thing was, is so I turned those songs into the movie and, and get paid, and it was an amazing thing to be a part of. And as they're keeping me posted, when the movie's coming out, They tell me, oh, by the way, we ended up casting Brian McKnight and he is singing Trouble Get Me Off Your Mind in the movie. And I like about lost my freaking mind because Dolly got to hear all these songs and, you know, they were kind of communicating to me what Dolly thought of the finale. And she was like dancing to it and stuff in the scene and was just saying, you know, how much she loved it. And it was just me and her that wrote all the music to this movie which is crazy. And she, they told me she loved it. And, and that she's like, well, that little girl sounds like me, right? And all by herself, you know, you know, and so I got the cut of Brian McKnight to hear it. And it just blew my mind because his voice is just like insane on my song. And what was the craziest, the kicker to this whole story is, is that in the movie, Brian McKnight plays a bartender and he comes out from the bar and gets on stage in the bar he works in and sings this song. So here I am working as a bartender, writing the song that his character, the bartender, sings in the scene. And so they couldn't have gotten more anything more authentic than a bartender writing a song for Brian McKnight playing a bartender in this movie. So it was the craziest you can't. I mean, the whole story itself sounds like its own movie. But that is the story behind my Brian McKnight cut. That uh, yeah.
1: I just got goosebumps. That's great. That's <laughs> wonderful.
0: <laughs> I, it's crazy. I, I can't can't make it up. You what know. About, <laughs> the next
1: the next one is uh, Mississippi Flood. You want to tell us a little bit mm-hmm. about Mississippi Flood?
0: Yeah. All my stories are are a little bit unbelievable, but it's just because the circumstances were always crazy. Um, I had written Mississippi flood with my friends, Lucy Silvis and children Brown. And we get a call. And again, I'm working as a, as a waitress when, when this happens and we get a call that they're going to use it in the finale of Nashville, you know, that it's going to be like kind of the comeback song for Juliet Barnes, which is Hayden Panettiere's character in, in Nashville. So she, they, they, you know, put our song in the finale and it was amazing and the the song even made it onto the season three soundtrack for nashville and the best news was that they were going to carry it over into the next season and it was going to be used in a few more episodes this song of ours well in the next episode where the song appears connie Britton, you know reina james uh connie Britton plays reina james Mm -hmm. and she's listening she's in the car listening to the radio and our song by Juliet Barnes comes on the radio. And at that point, the two of them were enemies in in the show. And so Raina is listening to our song, I'll Piss, and the radio DJ says, that was Juliet Barnes' latest number one Mississippi flood. And I always tell this story live before I sing the song. I was watching it. I had to record it because I was working. I was waiting tables when it aired. But I'm watching it. When I got to see it, and i was like oh my god i called lucy my co-writer i was like we have a number one in fake nashville like i've never had a number one before <laughs> and this is it we have a number one in fake nashville we are at the top of the charts we have the top you know female star in nashville cut cut our songs yes. and is uh and has a number one with it so that was really funny i always say that before i play it that i want to play you all my my number one in fake nashville it's my, my first big number one there fake <laughs> so maybe nashville. i should move there i don't know <laughs> yeah uh huh <laughs> So that was kind of
1: the story behind that one. Wow. So cool. So yeah. cool. I th- you know, and I yeah. think it's important for, for people outside of Nashville who don't get the opportunity to, to listen to songwriters tell their story, to understand that these mm-hmm. are people, real people writing real songs. And, right. you know, the the battle that's going on right now in, uh, you know, being paid for streaming royalties that I know you're a part mm-hmm. of as well, it's mm-hmm. a real thing for people like yourself who – are creating this beautiful art yet still struggling to pay their bills uh, and still having to work these restaurant jobs and balance the time between creating art and paying their bills because people are no longer buying these records like they used to. And money on streaming services aren't coming in at a rate that can help you live your life.
0: That is true. I I do a lot of work. Um, I mentioned earlier we were talking about a documentary I was involved in. The documentary is called The Last Songwriter, and we made this documentary um, to kind of spotlight what is happening to to the, to this generation of songwriters that, that has come up during the age of streaming. And it's Garth Brooks is in it, Jason Isbell, Emmylou Harris, Tom Douglas, Alan Shamblin, all these incredible artists and Hall of Fame songwriters uh, came together to kind of educate, Everyone, you know, um, the music business and the public alike, as to what's happening, and and my story of being the Grammy-nominated waitress just kind of fit right into what they're trying to make everybody understand how how bad it it has kind of become for for America's songwriter songwriting community, and so the NSAI here in Nashville is is responsible for going to Washington and kind of lobbying on behalf of of our songwriting community in America and just trying to do away with these archaic laws that have been kind of in place for, for way too long. And the laws kind of have not evolved with the way people consume music has evolved. So we have all these laws in place that were um, applicable years and years ago. And now technology and, and just the climate has changed so much and the laws haven't caught up so we have it in a nutshell i have been a part of of nsai's effort to to make our lawmakers and our congress and our senate aware of of the fact that that things need to change and they have to change because because songwriters write the soundtrack to everyone's lives and that is the truth and music is such an important part of our culture and we are losing that and And the American songwriter is a, is a dying breed and something has to be done and we are fighting to, to make a difference. And the beautiful thing about this, this ongoing story is that just last week we, and I'm, I'm really proud to say that I was, I was a very small part of, of kind of helping to make this happen is that something was introduced. There was a bill introduced by Doug Collins, who is an incredible lawmaker from Georgia that I've gotten to spend a lot of time with, our congressman from Georgia. Um, And they've introduced something called the Music Modernization Act of 2017. And this is groundbreaking because all of... All of the major players have kind of signed off on this bill. So we're talking the streaming organizations and the broadcasters and the songwriters and the record label. So everybody who usually does not agree mm. <laughs> and everybody who are usually at odds with each other just because of the nature, you know, everybody's interests are different, have come together on this one bill. That the fact that the bill was even introduced is incredible and bipartisan, you know, from both sides. We're having everybody, everybody is on board. And it's just a an incredible thing to have happen. We we're all calling it a Christmas miracle. But essentially, you know, Bart Herbison, who is the executive director of the NSAI, his quote was that this will be the first significant copyright legislation for songwriters in over 20 years. Wow. And I've, I've been back and forth to Washington um, with Bart and with Lee Thomas Miller, who is our president of the NSAI, our songwriter president. And I mean, I was in some of those meetings, those pivotal meetings. And I was telling my story and I played the blade and um, I just kind of got in there to try and touch the hearts of these people and, and kind of kind of get in touch with the human side of our lawmakers because it's really easy. They have so many people coming at them and they have so many different interests and people asking things of them, you know, that you really have to get in there and try to make an impact so that when it comes time for them to step up for for your cause that they have some kind of have some kind of emotional tie and some kind of motivation to to help when you need them to, and I feel like we accomplished that. And wow. and it's just been an honor. It's probably the most important thing I've ever done with my career as a songwriter. And I just, gosh, I just, I hope to God that I'm able to, uh, you know, continue to have a publishing deal or just continue to to hopefully make music, to hopefully have music be my income full time. If you are a songwriter listening, becoming a member of the NSAI is is such an incredible tool for you, and it also just it allows us to continue to fight for for your interests and and your future really is affected by what they do every single day. And um, I couldn't think of a better organization to to kind of be affiliated with and to support. So if anybody out there is is a lover of songwriters or song, I, I just would encourage you to kind of study up on what the NSAI does and, and support them any which way you can.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely.
0: Oh. Sorry, I got off on a tangent. I just, no, I, I love I, it.
1: I, I love <laughs> it. No, I, that's what I, I want you so to share to your heart. And I know that it's part of, of who you are. And I, as as a as a creator of art myself, I appreciate all of all the work that you guys are doing. So thank you mm-hmm. from me to you as well.
0: Uh, of course. I'm, I'm happy we're just continuing to, to keep in the direction that we've been going in. So
1: Well, my podcast is called <laughs> How to Fail Successfully. So before mm-hmm. you leave, I would like if mm-hmm. you could define failure for me.
0: In my life, failure is fuel. Mm. It it is failure for me has been a test of um, how how badly do you want it? You know, I, I always approach it where when 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 people have kind of pulled back their belief in me, whether that be financially or, or as, as a you know, colleague or whatever it is, you know I always go, okay, you don't believe that I can do this, but I still do. And that is the benefit of failure to me it, is that it reinstates my belief in myself. It reminds me of, it, it, it just reminds me to remain steadfast. Um, And there have been times where I felt like everybody else wrote me off. Everybody else thought that I was done or that I'd had my chance or that I'd have enough chances to where, you know, if I couldn't make it happen, why is this time going to be different? And every single time I have been able to come back stronger. And I think I mentioned that earlier, that I truly, in my darkest hours, after I've had some time go by and when I've worked for things and when I've just kind of fought for it I can truly say that I have come back more successful every single time after every single failure than I ever would have been had I stayed in that scenario and I think too that failure failure it, it, it is it's comprised of your greatest fears you know come to life and I feel like if you can survive that over and over again that that has been the greatest thing that's convinced me that nothing that nothing can stop me. You know, when you realize that you have faced your greatest fears and that you have come back and and you've been able to beat them and you've been able to kind of prove you can prove yourself right. You know what I mean? You you can prove it like when you come back and somebody says no you can't and you come back and yes I can and yes I did, there's no greater feeling than that. I'm telling you, even as a waitress, you know, being knowing that I couldn't get a publishing deal, nobody thought that I was worth that investment but I thought I was worth that investment, you know, enough to to pay myself full time and to work in a restaurant, pay myself to be a songwriter and then to get those movies all, you know, myself because of my work ethic and and what I had proven to people on my own and to be able to, you know, write a whole soundtrack to a movie, being a waitress, you know what I mean? Being somebody who is not paid to professionally write songs, to be able to somehow get in there and write an entire soundtrack while working full time, to be able to get a Grammy nomination while being a waitress full time. I feel like, I, that is the greatest motivator, and all of that failure equaled those successes. And I, I don't know. I just I feel like I feel like you have to. A, a dear friend of mine said this to me once. Uh, my friend Devin Feldman, she said to me, "If you can fail with faith, you know, if you can fail and have faith in yourself, that is the greatest gift you can give yourself. As long as you can fail with the faith that you can succeed again." I, I mean, that's just kind of been the cornerstone of my time here, and I think you also have to start looking at failure as as their loss and not yours. And I have failed enough to know <laughs> to tell to tell you that. And I'm like tearing up just, just talking about it. I just, I I have failed enough to know for sure that all of that is true, and um, I'm in the middle of another failure, what a lot of people look at as a failure, and. I am not afraid, you know, I'm not afraid to fail again and go back to a restaurant and I will be, you all can mark my words, (laughs) that if if I can help it, I will be the best Oscar nominated waitress you ever saw out there. (laughs) That's what it comes to, you know, but I'm just, I'm not scared of it anymore. And I just, I know that, um, that, uh, if you can use failure as fuel, nobody can stop you. Mm. They just can't.
1: I don't, I don't even want to ask my follow-up question to that because that's so powerful. I feel like we should just leave it on that note. It's amazing. It's amazing. Oh, but I, yeah. I have to ask the last question is, with yeah. that being said as the definition of failure, what is your definition of success?
0: Well, I feel like the definition of success is probably how well you handle the failure. You know what wow. I mean? Because, yeah. because like right now, if I were to step back and go, you know what? I just lost my deal. I just lost all the support that I had that I was counting on, um, for years to come. You know, if I just went, you know what, they're right. You know what? Maybe I'm not worth it. Maybe I, you know, belong in a restaurant for the rest of my life. That, that would be true failure, but success would mean taking this blow and going, you know what, I'm going to turn this into, um, like I was saying, the fuel, to get me to the next Grammy nomination I'm going to use this to get me to the next restaurant job that will allow me to pay myself to have the next movie soundtrack that all right, you know and if I can do that I think I will always have success to look forward to
1: well Jamie we are all out of time and I want to thank you for opening up your heart and your story and allowing us to listen and learn from you so thank you for taking the time to do that
0: well thank you so much for, for asking me to, to, to speak and I hope I hope some of this was inspiring and, and I certainly am not the end all. <laughs> like I said before, I, I certainly have failed enough to, to be able to hopefully give some advice that, that can help um, those of you out there who have experienced some failure too and, and are having a hard time. Absolutely, so thank you. So, so thank you very much.
1: What are you willing to sacrifice achieve your goals. Do you see how Jamie worked two jobs to try to buy a car so that she could get to college, that she could get an education and learn and and work on her craft? You'll see a common theme in in most of the episodes that people, you know, A, she moved. She made the move. She made the big leap of faith to move to Nashville, the music town. That's where she needed to be to, to, to thrive in country music. But the other thing is that she worked hard she worked fast and was very consistent consistency is the key always putting in hard work and good work consistently will always get you more work in next week's episode it is going to be my Valentine's Day episode I have not recorded it yet but I got three couples and we're going to be talking about obviously love failing in love, winning in love everything about love that's next week.
0: Oh, well, thank you very much. It means a lot. It was very crazy timing that you asked me and list the name of your podcast. Like I told my <laughs> business managers and stuff and they were like, oh, my God, that is awesome. My publicist is like, that is so great. I was like I know, right? So we we're That's all laughing. Awesome. We we're like, well, if that isn't appropriate, I don't know what is. <laughs> yes. Good. So Good. It was great. Congratulations. I can't wait to see as your podcast and everything grows. It'll be cool to watch.